Thanks, Rob. Good morning again. It's great to be here. I'm Dave, one of the student ministers here. Around eight years ago, I proposed to Maddie, who you met just before. Here's, yep, here's a picture of us. I've got a few more grey hairs now since we've had kids, but uh, there we are, looking pretty happy. Uh, just shortly after this, we went engagement ring shopping. And if you know me, I'm not a great shopper. Whenever I go to a department store or something like that, I start to get a bit twitchy, sometimes a bit lightheaded. Um, Maddie's had to deal with this for a long time now. But luckily, with this engagement ring shopping, I had Maddie there hold my hand, so it was okay. Um, but let me tell you, like, engagement ring shopping, it's a, it's a complex task. There are different styles. There are these trilogies and solitaires. There's the four C's. I can't remember them, so I've got them written here. Cut, clarity, color, and carrot. It's, I'm feeling pretty exhausted actually explaining this, but that's okay. But one thing I did learn doing this engagement ring shopping is that all good diamond rings, they have one thing in common. So that whenever you look at them from a different angle, you see the light refract in a different way, in a beautiful and different way. And you just have a greater appreciation at the end of the, for the diamond as a whole. Uh, in 2 Kings, chapter 6 and 7, we got a little slice of that. We got the first story, half of the second story, but there's another story. And in each of these accounts, we're getting a slightly different angle on how God beautifully reigns over our world. Uh, in the first story, we, ho- we heard the whole thing. We see God really uh, intimately caring for his people. Uh, he helps the son of prophet to get his axe head back, uh, get him out of that it's not quite an everyday bind, but get him out of that bind there. Uh, and in the second and third account, the camera kind of pans out a bit. And uh, we see it's not, he's not just the God of Israel, but he's a God who r- rules over the whole world, all the nations. And we see two accounts here of Israel uh, in, in wars with the Arameans. And we heard, uh, yep, here we go here. So there's Aram up there, there's Israel. There's two wars going on. Uh, and we didn't actually get to hear the third war, so I just want to encourage you, go away, have a read of that at the end of chapter 6, end of 7. Uh, read that account and see how God's ruling there. But in particularly, we're just going to look at one angle of the diamond here today. We're just going to see God ruling in that middle account there, the war between Israel and Aram. And, and I hope that as we dive into this account today, I hope that you remember that our God is a powerful God. He reigns over all the nations. And what we see here is that he reigns mercifully. He delivers his people, but he even spares his enemy. Let's get into it today. As I mentioned, the, can- the cameras panned out uh, from one faithful servant and his axe head to two nations, the Israelites and the Arameans. And right from the start, we're reminded that these guys are arch enemies. Have a look at your Bible if you've got it open. Verse 8, the king of Aram is waging war against Israel. And we get an insight uh, straight away what kind of strategies he's using. Verse 8, we hear, he conferred with his servants. My camp will be at such and such a place. It's a pretty simple plan. What he's going to do is he's going to set up his army in a strategic location and then these unsuspecting Israelites, when they get close enough, the Arameans are going to pounce on them, attack. But the thing with this strategy is, uh, it really depends on uh, the element of surprise. 
And what we see here clearly is that it's not a surprise from the prophet Elisha. Ultimately, it's not a surprise from God. And so Elisha warns the king of Israel. Verse 9, he sends message saying this, Be careful passing by this place. The Arameans are going down there. Now some people, um, some commentaries even, they suggest, you know, Elisha, clearly he's got like an inside man near the king of Aram, you know, and he's giving him this intel. Uh, But if you're someone who's been following through the book of Kings here, you know that that couldn't be further from the case. The only reason that here Elisha has any information at all is because he's the prophet of God, and it's God who's chosen to reveal this to him. So the outcome, uh, it's pretty simple. The Israelites, they avoid the attacks. God has delivered his people. And actually, as we stop and take pause of this, it's quite interesting and quite amazing that God would actually choose to spare his Israelites at this point. Thinking about uh, the, the broader context here, Israel, the northern kingdom, they've been rebellious against God. They've chosen to worship idols rather than worship him. They've even attacked his prophets. We've, we've seen Elijah, we've seen Elisha, but that's just the start of it. There are other prophets. They've been attacking them. And God's made it clear uh, from 1 Kings 19, he said they're going to be judged for this. Uh, God will actually deal with this wrong, all apart from a small remnant who remained faithful to him. We're going to see this actually play out in the next few chapters. So it's striking that despite this, despite how God's going to justly rule here, here he protects and he rescues his people. As undeserving as they are, he's given the Israelites a chance to repent, a chance to serve him, to join that faithful remnant. God's very, very merciful. Much as we see to the dissatisfaction of King Aram, in verse 11, what do we hear? He's enraged that the Israelites escaped his trap. And what's more, he's convinced there's a snitch on the inside. He says, verse 11, Tell me, which one of us is for the king of Israel? He's saying, who here is serving the king of Israel? Who's snitching? But one of these servants here, quite bravely, he seems to know the source of the leak. And so he replies to the king. He says, no one, my lord. Elisha, the prophet in Israel, he tells the king of Israel, even the words you speak in your bedroom. It's incredible to think about. Elisha, the prophet, uh, and really, ultimately, God, there's no cone of silence with God. He hears even the things that the king of Aram says in his bedroom. As big as complicated as this world can be at times, There's one God who rules over it all, and there's nothing that gets past him. Well, the king, at least at some level, he seems to take this servant's advice on board, which makes the next move a little bit more ridiculous. Because instead of stopping and thinking, hmm, there's this prophet here who knows everything, maybe, maybe I shouldn't keep attacking them, Instead, he comes up with a plan B. Take out Elisha. And in the next section, God reveals more about how he's ruling over the nations. And it's a comforting reality for his people. 
Let's get into it. Verse 13, the king of Aram says to his servants, go and see where he is, that's Elisha, so I can send men to capture him. Now, maybe the king, he wants to capture Elisha so that he's got this, you know, he's got this guy with all the intel. Maybe he thinks this could be a weapon to be used. Probably more likely he just wants to take him out of the picture, I think, so that he can finally achieve victory over the Israelites. Anyway, they figure out where Elisha is. He's in a place called Dothan. Uh, Yep, you can see that there, Dothan. It's about 19 kilometers north of Israel. Uh, Sorry, north, yeah, north of Israel. And in verse 14, uh, sorry, north of Samaria. (laughs) Knew there's something not quite right about that. North of Samaria. And in verse 14, the king of Aram, uh, he pulls out all stops to capture Elisha. What does he say, verse 14? He sent horses, chariots, and a massive army. They went by night and surrounded the city. It's overkill, isn't it? Uh, this, This king is pouring all his resources, all his military resources he has, to capture one man. And to be even more certain, he uses covert tactics. He sets up camp by night while no one sees them. So he thinks he can take the prophet by surprise. Well, from verse 15, we pick things up the following morning at Dothan. It's early, and Elisha's poor servant, I have to say, he's rubbing the sleep out of his eyes. He's going for an early morning stroll. You know, maybe he's trying to get his 10,000 steps in or something. When suddenly he looks up, and what does he see? Verse 15. He discovered an army with horses and chariots surrounding the city. And so he went back to Elisha, I imagine in a hurry, and he asked, Oh, my master, what are we to do? My mind goes to those old shows, kind of like the old Batman shows where Robin will turn to Batman and say, Gee, Willikers, Batman, what are we going to do? That's probably just me. I'm probably revealing too much of myself here. Uh, But as, as comical as... It is. I actually find, in a weird way, this servant's experience is really relatable to me, relatable to the Christian life. Not this exact scenario. I've never woken up like this. But, but as a follower of Jesus, we know what it's like to be a minority, don't we? We know what it's like to be in a crowd where the people who, who don't know Jesus, who don't love him, they hold all the cards. You can end up feeling pretty vulnerable I think of my, law, my experiences at school, at university, working as a lawyer, working in other jobs, working in, uh, just being in social groups even. It can be lonely at times. When others have the power to make your life more difficult, but sometimes, it, for me at least, it's been simple as you know, somebody making you look like an idiot for being a follower of Jesus. Being a Christian, there are times when we can feel outnumbered, Weak, powerless. Wonder if you've ever had this, this kind of experience before. And of course, you know, as we as we think about things going on in the world, some believers have to suffer so much more for being a follower of Jesus. Uh, just in Christianity Today, a magazine in the September edition, Nigeria was listed as the seventh toughest country to be in, in the world as a Christian. And the, the article referred to this Nigerian believer whose dad had been beheaded by Boko Haram. This is what he said. 
He said, once you're a Christian in Nigeria, your life's at stake. And I imagine, although I don't know, that seeing this, this servant's experience here, that would be even more relatable for one of them. Being outnumbered. People who don't love Jesus holding the power. But coming back to our, our story here, while the king's tactics, it's taken the servant by surprise, Elisha, he's undeterred. Did you notice that? Because in verse 16, he sees something the servant doesn't. Verse 16, Elisha said, Don't be afraid. For those who outnumber us, sorry, those who are with us outnumber those who are with them. Now, at this point, if you're the servant, I think you might have been a bit confused, right? You might be trying to do the math, looking out the window, thinking, okay, there's one, two of us, there's going around the city, one, two, three, four, five. But God opens this servant's eyes to a greater reality. Verse 17, Elisha prays to God, Lord, please open his eyes and let him see. So the Lord opened the servant's eyes. He looked and saw that the mountain was covered with horses and chariots of fire. All around Elisha. While Aram's forces, they surround the city, what we see here is that God's mightier army surrounds and protects Elisha. And it's no ordinary army, is it? Horses and chariots made of fire. The servant here, he'd seen part of the picture, but he hadn't seen the whole picture. And so here God opens his eyes to the greater reality, the bigger picture. And it's a comforting reality. The powerful God, the one over all the nations, he looks after his people. And God still looks after his people today. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, he says, We know all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. God, he does all things for the good of those who love him. And just like Elisha prays for his servant, that his eyes might be open, Paul gives us a similar prayer, helping us to see, uh, helping our eyes, our hearts to be open to this reality. In verse 18, he prays this, I pray that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened, so we may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength? Amen. No matter how weak or vulnerable we may feel at any given moment, at any given point in time, God's still powerfully and graciously at work for the good of his people. Let's let's keep praying this prayer for ourselves and for others that we might have our hearts open to this reality. Well, in the next section from verse 18, and it's here, we didn't get the Bible reading, so you're going to have to follow closely in your Bibles. Uh, from here we see that God not only opens the eyes of his servant to this greater reality, he actually opens the eyes of, his, of the Arameans. It's really intriguing. What's he trying to reveal to them? What's he trying to reveal to us too? Let's keep reading. Uh, For the servant, the curtain's been pulled back. He sees this greater reality. God's got all the power. He will deliver his people. 
But the Arameans, they haven't seen this, have they? They haven't seen the fiery horses and chariots. And so they begin their attack. And in response, Elisha prays another prayer. It's not that God will annihilate the enemies here with the army. What does he pray, verse 18? He prays, please strike this nation with blindness. He's opened the eyes of the servant, and now we see he's asking that the, um, the enemy might be blinded, lose their sight. And God answers the second prayer, verse 18. So he struck them with blindness, according to Elisha's word. And as a result, this army is totally nullified, aren't they? doesn't matter how many big chariots you have. If you're blind, you're not going to be able to win a battle. And you're definitely not going to be able to pinpoint this prophet that they're trying to get. So why doesn't the the story finish here? Don't you think it's interesting? Aaron's been defeated. The Israelites have been delivered. Why does it keep going? I think it's because God's, God's not done. Just like when he opened the eyes of the servant, we see here he's got more that he wants the Arameans to see. He's got more we want to see too. So let's keep reading verse 19. And then Elisha said to them, this is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I'll take you to the man you're looking for. I think he's having a little bit of fun here with this massive army. He's saying to them, hey, you're looking for Elisha? You're not going to see him in this city, which is, it's true, right? He's blinded them. They're not going to see him here. So he says, come on, I'll, I'll take you to the real city. Come follow me. But what happens after they arrive in this new location? Elisha, he asks God to open their eyes and God answers his prayer. And what do they see? End of verse 20. They looked and discovered they were in Samaria. This is not good for them, is it? Elisha's led them straight to the king of Israel, right in the heartland of Israel, in Samaria, their capital. To use very, very highly uh, technical warfare terminology, these guys are sitting ducks. God's opened the eyes of the servant to reveal a greater reality before. He said that if you're one of God's people, he'll look after you. But here, we're actually seeing the other side of this coin here, aren't we? He's opened the Aramean's eyes. And they're seeing that if you're not one of God's people, if you stand opposed to the God who rules the nations, you're actually putting yourself in a very, very precarious position. And the same the same's true for us today. This is something we'll come back to in a moment. So he's opened the eyes of the servant. He's opened the eyes of the Arameans. And yet, God isn't done... Uh, he hasn't done revealing himself. He's actually got more to say. And so in the final few verses, God shows that he's merciful, not just in how he delivers his people, but even how he spares his enemies. Let's get into this final section. So as we've seen, the Arameans, they've been relentlessly attacking not only God's people, but his prophet. And now, after witnessing God's mighty power at work, these Arameans, they're sitting ducks. I can't imagine how that would have felt for them at this moment. They must have just been totally at a loss for what to do next. In fact, we see even the king of Israel, he seems a bit of uns- unsure of himself, doesn't he? 
He's clearly not used to winning battles this easily. And so he says to Elisha, verse 21, My father, should I kill them? I'll kill them. Is he right to make this suggestion here? Well, I think at one level it's actually pretty reasonable. Uh, we see in the Old Testament and in Kings as well, there are these holy wars going on. And, and there are points where God says, yes, it's right to defeat the enemy. It's right to defeat those people who are opposing me, opposing my way. And these Arameans, they're definitely the enemy of God's people here. But that's not what we're seeing in this account today, is it? God's revealing something else about himself. Verse 22, Elisha says, Don't kill them. Do you kill those who have been captured with the sword or your bow? Elisha's saying, these guys are prisoners of war, and we're not going to kill them. But it doesn't, it doesn't stop there. Elisha continues his instructions to the king. He says, Set food and water in front of them so they can eat and drink and go to their master. And the king does this, verse 22. He prepares a great feast for them and then he sends them away. It's one thing uh, to spare these people, but to hold a banquet for them? Don't you think that's just outrageous? God's revealing here something quite incredible about himself. He's showing that his mercy, it doesn't just extend to how he delivers his people, but it also extends in how he spares his enemies at times like this. It's so incredible and countercultural. Let's think about this for a moment. We've seen God is so powerful in this story. He's revealing the secrets of the king to Elisha. He's opening the eyes of, of his servants to this fiery chariot protecting him. He's blinding the eyes of this great army. Our God is so powerful. And as we've shifted our focus to how God rules the nations, we see he's the one who holds all the power, not only over Israel, but over the world. He's over every, every world event, every geopolitical action. The war in Ukraine, it's not outside of his power. In fact, Jesus even told us to expect these wars. And what's striking here at the end is how God uses this power with the Aramean army. He doesn't annihilate them, although he could have, and they deserve it. Instead, he spares them and he gives them a banquet. And yet, even as he's doing this, he still delivers his people. After the feast, the Arameans go home, and the last words that we read are this. Verse 23... And the Aramean raiders did not come back to Israel's land again. We don't know if it's out of humiliation, thankfulness, fear, or some kind of combination. But these Aramean raiders, they don't come back. God has delivered his people. And what God is revealing so graphically here in our passage is the way that he delivers his people, but also tempers the exercise of his power in doing this. He shows grace and mercy. He spares the enemy while delivering his people. And don't we see this even more fully and clearly in the saving work of Jesus our Lord? Matthew 26, when the Roman soldiers, they came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Peter, one of his servants, retaliates. He draws his sword and cuts the ear off of one of uh, the attackers. But Jesus responds calmly, and this is what he says to Peter. Verse 52. Put your sword away. Put it back in its place, because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I cannot call on my Father, and he'll provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Jesus holds all the power here, doesn't he? He could have sent down 12 legions, that's 72,000 angels, to sort things out. And he doesn't, he holds back. And then as he hung there on the cross, he could have sent those angels again uh, to defend him against the people who hammered those nails into his hands. But he doesn't, he holds back. He had all the power in the world and he doesn't use that power against his enemies. Why? It's because at the cross, Jesus, he brought about the most powerful deliverance. For all who trust in him, he's delivered us from sin and death. He's delivered us from the evil powers of this world. He's delivered us so we can serve him as our king. And now we know it's this Jesus. He sits on the throne. He rules over all the powers of this world with all authority and power. As he told his disciples when he rose in Matthew 28, he said, all authority in heaven on earth, it's been given to me. And Paul gives us a picture of what this authority looks like. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 onwards, he says, He, that's God, exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given not only in this generation, but in the one to come. And he's put all things under his feet and gave him the head that is above every name uh, gave him as head over all things for the church. Jesus is ruling over the nations with all power and authority. Nothing is outside of his reign today. And we can be confident that as we see this messy world unfolding, Jesus hates the injustices of this world more than anyone. He hates it when a Putin he abuses his power to try and take over Ukraine. He hates it when Christians are persecuted. Jesus wants justice more than anyone. And we can be confident that he will bring final justice on all of these matters. He's powerful and he's going to do this. In 2 Peter 3, uh, this is what God's word tells us. There's a great day of reckoning and justice and it's described in this way. 2 Peter 3 verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Jesus holds all the power, and on this day, justice will be his. So why, why hasn't he brought this day of justice? Why is he even now exercising that restraint of power for this purpose? It's the same reason we saw in Gethsemane the same reason we saw at the cross when he held back his power. It's because Jesus is still mercifully sparing his enemies. He's still giving them opportunity to know God's deliverance at the cross, where we see his power most fully shown. And in 2 Peter 3, the same chapter, 
Verse 8 and 9, Peter says this. He says, Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay. But he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. As Jesus rules now, he's showing incredible restraint. He's showing enormous patience. He's showing grace and mercy. He's holding back that final day of judgment so more can know this true power of the cross. So more can know God's deliverance. We've got a powerful God who rules over these nations. And he reigns mercifully, sparing his enemies, delivering his people. We're going to finish our time in prayer. And uh, I'm going to say the words that we saw earlier in Ephesians, Paul's prayer. It's a prayer that we might understand how God is powerfully and graciously at work in this world for the good of his people. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pray to you, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, we pray that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. We pray that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened so we might know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power towards us who believe, according to the mighty working of your strength. Amen.